Hey, Rockheads, you might not know about Code on the Beach, a nonprofit, family friendly conference happening this August 8th through the 10th in Atlantic Beach, Florida. Lots of mobile, data, and cloud topics at the intermediate and advanced level delivered by industry heavyweights like John Papa, Nick Molnar, David Neal, Charles Petzold, Greg Young, and more. And .NET Rocks fans can enjoy a $50 discount by entering the code Rocks. that's D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S, at codeonthebeach.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1013. Recorded Monday, July 14th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks Show. It's our monthly geek out show. Richard is here with all sorts of things to say about nuclear fusion. Yep. Oh my my. <laughs> I don't know. I, I maybe I'm enjoying these even more. I'm doing more research. Yeah. You know, I always come in with these things with a certain amount of understanding, but as you dig deeper and deeper and deeper, it changes things. And I thought we'd do a show on fusion power, but I think we're gonna have to do. Th- Three. Okay. But we'll see what the uh, listeners think. You know, they can give me feedback, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. Very cool. Well, I actually have an announcement for uh, Better Know Framework, so go for it. Let her rip. All right, buddy, what do you got? The Connect for Windows second generation SDK has entered public beta. It's out. Huh? Awesome. So anybody can have access to it now? Yep. And uh, you can buy the device in the store. Mm-hmm. And it's $199. Okay. So this second generation uh, Connect for Windows is based on the Xbox One Connect for Windows. Right. And you can now buy the Xbox One without the Connect if you want. That's right. In fact, it comes without the Connect now, and you can buy the sensor for one ninety nine, I believe. Right. But the this is the version that works with Windows. Nice. And uh, oh my, is it? You know, go back and listen to when we talked to Tim Huckabee about this next generation sensor, if you want the the scoop. But in a nutshell, it's got so much higher fidelity. It's a lot quicker, like lower latency. Right. In terms of how fast it responds to you, it can see forever. It can pick up people at a hundred feet. Wow! It can. It has a wider range of vision, so it can see peripherally better. It um, can track six humans with the uh, previously known as skeletons. Now they're bodies. It can track up to six people. We could see six people with the earlier Connect for Windows, but we can only track two of them. This will track all the joints. For six people simultaneously. Wow. Yeah, very, very cool. So it is a big step up. You've been you've been working with it. I have. In fact, there's a new version of Gesture Pack uh, probably out by now. Yeah. Uh, if not, go to gesturepack.com, gesturepak.com. comes with full source code. It's also based on um, a, a tool that I'm open sourcing called Connect Tools, which really abstracts away all the guts of dealing with the connect. If you just want to show video on the screen, if you want to show a skeleton uh, or all the skeletons and just handle everything in one simple event, you know, without having to worry about all the other goo, because it's pretty low level, the API. Yeah. 
Yeah. So this is a, a nice layer of abstraction on it. Just makes it easy. A few lines of code and you're off to the races. So all of that you can find um, on my blog, carlfranklin.net, by the time the show gets out. But check out connectforwindows.com to download the SDK. And you can get the device in the Windows Store for $199. We can't argue with that. $199, that is. I'm wondering when it's going to start being built into monitors. Like, maybe this is the one. Well, it's kind of big to be built into monitors. You you take a look at it. It's yeah, still it's almost bulky. a foot wide. And it's, you know, two or three inches deep. And it does have to pivot, you know. So yeah, it, has it has a little, to be able to move. has a little foot that it pivots on. Um, another great feature of it is audio tracking. So it has a microphone array. Yeah. And then there's an audio uh, API that can basically map audio as it comes in to a particular body. Who said that? Right. Knowing very, who said something. Yeah. Very, very cool. So instead of just having a stereo uh, input, if you're doing speech recognition or you want to know who said what, for example, um, yeah, you can, it can track, it can tell which of those six people said a particular thing. Cool. It's very cool. And uh, I got to write the, the visual basic sample code. Oh, really? Yeah. For Microsoft? Yeah. Microsoft hired me to port the code, the sample apps from C Sharp to VBNet. So I'm thoroughly involved in this, in this device. Well, that's neat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a real thing. It's all over the place. It's not just for video games anymore. No, it's real. That's and cool. currently developing an app with it for a customer in the medical field, and they're delighted with it. Specifically uh, for the Connect 2 or on mm-hmm. the PC? or is yep. it for specifically on the for the Connect 2 on the That's PC. That's really cool. Yep. All right. Yeah, That's there deep. it is. Know it, learn it, love it. Excellent. Who's talking to us, Richard? I only get to read all the amazing comments <laughs> that we get on Geek Out shows. There's so many. Only on, on other Geek Out shows, yeah, right? Right. So I grabbed a, a hefty one. Off of 998, of course, the Nuclear Weapons Show. And I got to tell you, there's a few comments on that show that choked me up. So yeah. I'm not going to read one of those. Yeah. But uh, let me read the one from Eric Ingbar, which is lengthy, but it hits a few points that I may not have done justice to on the uh, the Nuclear Weapons Show. Okay, but great. First of all, thanks for Donnet Rocks. I have listened to the show for a very long time, about 900 episodes worth. Wow. Uh, second, I have a thought or two regarding show 998 on nuclear weapons. Your presentation and research were, as ever, polished and complete. Have you considered a world without nuclear weapons in the Cold War era? Might there have been a conventional war over Eastern Europe? Quite possibly, and I can't argue with that. Likewise, might the People's Republic of China have annexed Taiwan? Mm. Again, possibly so. That's eh, a bit of a stretch, dude. Taiwan doesn't have nuclear weapons. And I, you're very tough to justify whether somebody else like the U.S. might use them over it. And one might also say that since we can't use nuclear weapons, we might as well not have them now. Do you know what I mean? They are they are less of a deterrent than – I mean, everybody knows they won't be used. Well, and I, I wonder if that's exactly the case. It's all, you know, a debate over crazy at this point, isn't yeah. it? Right. And, and Eric goes on along exactly those lines. I am not an advocate of nuclear weapons and one wishes they were never invented, but we do have to see them in the perspective of how they were used as a deterrent. So perhaps on the balance, they had some value. Perhaps. You know, that they may have gotten us through the Cold War. Warhead kiss continued to escalate and escalate and escalate until we finally hit a point where it had gone too far. Mm-hmm. We finally came up with a weapon too powerful even for us to use. And I think it's de-escalated war as a whole mm. worldwide. Although... 
saying that right now with the insanities that are going on in Syria yeah. and the Ukraine uh, and Iraq and uh, it's just and Afghanistan. It's tough. It's a tough time. And I still have to remind myself, I was just reading pieces the other day, I just remind myself, it's still the safest time to be alive. You are the least likely as a human to be killed by another human right now than ever before. Yeah, that's very true. If just, we lose perspective yeah. because we're engrossed in the news. The news just hammers away at yeah. us. Uh, did the value outweigh the cost, which we are still paying today, and who can know that? Like you, I find the technology of nuclear weaponry both fascinating and horrifying. Certainly, many things that we enjoy today have their genesis in the trillions of dollars spent on weapons programs. Right. The global positioning system and its Soviet-era counterpart, GLOSS-NAS. Right. Uh, miniature circuitry, all ICs, really. The yep. Internet. Yep. Right? Came from DARPAnet. Space That's exploration, right. satellite development, all these things all came those... from the engineering and support of the weapons of mass destruction. As we said before, Intel was formed by ex- uh... By guys that were that came out of that program, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. They, they came from Fairchild, and Fairchild built uh, navigation systems for missiles. Yeah. And yeah, the question is: Was it specific to mass destruction? Or was it just the cold, the whole fear engine between the Soviets and the U.S. and the rest of the world that generated all this technology? The resources we in the U.S. put into this crazy game of nuclear dominance were stunning. We can admire the dedication of folks in the program as a reflection of the us-against-them mindset of the era while finding it unsettling now. Yet, there really was a belief that we were right and the other guys were wrong. And he references the movie Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick is a genius. Mm -hmm. And he really did nail it. Sure did. Uh, to me, the scariest part is how tenuous our grasp was and perhaps is on the use of these weapons. And he mentions the book Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, which I have read, but just how close we've come to accidentally launching nuclear strikes. And we talked about that in that show as well. Yes, it is It is kind of a mess. And uh, having been to the Nevada test site and seen some of the destruction and power of these weapons, the descriptions and video cannot do them justice. All I can think is, man, we have been so lucky that these things have not gone off. It's speaking of near misses, you know about this guy, Stanislav Petrov. Mm -hmm. You can just Google Bing him, Stanislav Petrov, P-E-T-R-O-V. He was uh, born in 1939, a retired lieutenant colonel of the Soviet Air Defense Forces. And on September 26, 1983, so I was in high school. Yep. He was the duty officer, and this is all according to Wikipedia, which has not been contested. He was the duty officer at the command center for the OCO nuclear warning system when the system reported that a missile was being launched from the United States, and he judged the report to be a false alarm. He couldn't believe it. His decision is credited with having prevented an erroneous retaliatory nuclear attack on the United States and its NATO allies that could have resulted in large-scale nuclear war. Investigation later confirmed that the satellite warning system had indeed malfunctioned. Wow. So if it wasn't for this guy saying, you know what? I don't believe this is Doesn't happening. look right. Doesn't, doesn't smell right. Doesn't look right. There, it just couldn't happen. Yeah. And he basically, and I believe he was brought up on charges afterwards. Oh, yeah. No, dereliction of duty. Yeah. Even though he saved the world. Yeah. No, you know, the, but, the world could have been destroyed if he had not used his human judgment. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. There's a few of those. Yes. Where you sort of look at There are. There was a judgment made here, and, and yeah, it's very, very challenging. Uh, and it's even tougher for the guys who are still 
running the nuclear weapons systems in the U.S. and and imagine in Russia today. Yeah, you know, it was one thing when they were on the front lines of the Cold War and they were the most important people. But budgets have been cut. It's not a growth industry anymore. Right. So you're sort of getting, you know, it's hard to be enthusiastic and to operate at the skill level required for the danger that these weapons represent. Yep. Uh, one wonders what initiatives and actions occurring today will seem as diluted, poorly controlled, self-interested, or short-sighted when viewed from the year 2050. No doubt today's actions will have some benefits, just as the nuclear weapons programs has. Uh, whatever the value of nuclear weapons in the past and present, let's hope that our governments of the planet can agree that these things are evil and should be eliminated entirely. Let's get rid of them as a global variable. That's mm. grim humor for programmers, but a real hope for the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see them as ever being eliminated. I think the continued pressure to minimize them is a good idea. But, uh, you know, in some ways, they're still doing their job. We can only push the Russians so far. Right. Right? You know, one would argue that the Russians psychosis around Ukraine is now misplaced. You have nuclear weapons. Nobody's going to attack you as long as you have them. Just relax a little. But that's mm -hmm. a whole other show and probably shouldn't go there. Eric, mm -hmm. thank you so much for your comments. Still a touchy subject for me uh, that I'm gradually moving on from. Thank you uh, again for uh, for listening and, and being a part of that. Uh, Donnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Donnet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com. Or on any of our mobile apps, we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, Android, and iOS. All right, where do we start with uh, with Fusion? First of all, let's talk about the difference between Fission and Fusion. Yeah, sure, let's go there. Let's um, go there. Because we've done uh, three Fission-related shows. And in Fission shows, uh, in the Fission conversation, we always start with big atoms, right? Yeah. Big, big atoms, uranium. Big, heavy uh, atoms. Yeah, plutonium and thorium. Uh, and the advantage of big atoms is they're relatively easy to split apart. And I think we just sort of take for granted how crazy that is. When you fission a uranium atom, it normally breaks down. Its normal decomposition is the cesium and iodine. So you, you're transmuting. You're making brand new stuff out mm. of stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. That we do that. And along the way, it releases a lot of energy. And fusion, largely, we're going, we, we go the other way. We start with very light substances like hydrogen and we fuse them together into helium. Now, that's way harder than fission. Fission is a naturally occurring process in an environment like the earth, right? They, right. When, when first fission reactors were built in the forties and fifties, they were finding there's a place in the Congo of all places. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is called today. Where there's so much uranium concentrated, it is a natural nuclear reactor. Yeah. It is going on all the time. It's one of the reasons they, they were so careful with uranium in the early days because they, they didn't think there was very much of it. They found much more since. Fusion plays a different game because you are trying to make two atoms fuse together into something heavier. So hydrogen into helium. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with that? Well, it takes a lot of force to do that. There's all these different forces that go on, and you learn this in your early physics classes in high school, hopefully, that you had the strong nuclear force versus the uh, weak nuclear force, or what we largely call electrostatic force now. 
So in order to, as soon as I start putting energy in atoms, and let's just play with hydrogen, for example, uh, it's not that hard to get the electron to blow off of it, right? You get it a little hot, the electron comes off, it's now an ion, right? right. It's it's a proton, really, just yeah. a proton. And to fuse them is to get two protons to actually bind together to become helium. And you should probably have a few neutrons around while you do that. So in protons, we're not, don't like to be bound together, no. do they? They're, I mean, they're, they're positive, uh... They're both positive, aren't right. they? Right, and so now you talk about what they call Coulomb's law, which is this electrostatic force that keeps two charges, like two protons, apart, right? And they, the ratio is directly proportional to the scalar multiplication of the magnitudes of the charges and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. <laughs> so how much charge is in them versus how far apart they are? Yeah. So it's not hard to bring them close together when they have relatively little charge, but it gets harder and harder as you get closer and closer and closer. And you need to be really close together to actually fuse to become a new element. Just as an aside, I hear about negative ions as being, you know, present in the atmosphere right after a rainstorm, that kind of thing. What is that all about? I mean, if I th if an ion is a proton, what's a negative ion? Well, anything can be an ion. A, pro a proton is a positively charged ion. Oh, I see. I mean, ions just means they have a charge. Oh, okay. So, a negative ion is electrons okay. roaming around. That makes sense. Right? So, the upside is once you can get past the electrostatic force, the strong nuclear force, the thing that actually binds hadrons, that's protons and neutrons, together is really, really powerful, right? It's relative. Once you've got them together, it's relatively hard to split them apart. Yeah. And so the focus has always been in fusion or the primary focus, and certainly where we're going to go in this show, has been on what we call high energy fusion, where we're using a lot of kinetic energy, pouring a lot of energy into them so that they can impact together randomly. Because mm -hmm. when you pour more and more energy into them, they move around faster and faster and faster. And uh, that moment of fusion, interestingly, releases energy. So when you finally get two things to bond together and become the, this uh, helium nucleus, they release a very powerful burst of energy, typically in the form of x-rays. So if you look up in the sky on a sunny day and you see that big yellow evil day star. It, yes. That is one great big ball of nuclear fusion, right? All the time. Yes. Yeah. And, and actually these days we have such good satellite videos of how violent the sun actually is. The yeah. constant, it's just a huge ball of electromagnetic force. Is these, uh, the, the plasma, which is just highly ionized particles twisting and turning around themselves. Hmm. But fusion goes up the chain. Remember every element that we ever see anywhere is stuff of stars. You're right. Everything is made there. So it all started as hydrogen, and it's gradually been fused up the chain more and more and more. And it's an interesting threshold hmm. when you're doing fusion. Normally, when you fuse atoms together, whatever atoms they may be, they release energy. But as they get heavier, they need more energy to fuse. And at some point, they release less energy than it costs to fuse. And it's around the, the iron point, atomic weight 56. Now you said you said something that's really critical here that I don't want to skip over. You said that everything starts out as hydrogen and then gets fused into to heavier and heavier elements. Right. And and that all comes from the sun, the from, from a star. From stars. Yes. Yeah. Everything. So so the star the star stuff starts out as hydrogen mm -hmm. and then all the other elements are created from that via fusion. Yes. 
That is really fascinating and something I did not know. Well, I mean, you start thinking in terms, we probably could do a whole show just on the astrophysics around it. So as main sequence stars, of which our star is one, and are, which are relatively small, yeah. the big stars are really big compared to, to a, a star like ours. Mm. They, fe- they don't just stop at he- helium. They keep fusing and keep fusing and keep fusing. The hydrogen gets slowly consumed over billions of years, becoming helium and lithium and beryllium, working its way up the periodic table. Right. But it, in normal main sequence stars, they don't get much above stuff like iron. That's about as heavy as you can get. Mm. Now, for the Chon spectrum, for everything that involves organic life, right? Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. That's all well within the spectrum of main uh, sequence stars, which is why water seems to be abundant mm. in, in the universe. Why iron and nickel are relatively abundant in the universe. But all of the heavier atoms above the iron weight, when you get into stuff like lead and then into the transuranics and so forth, they can only be formed by epic amounts of energy. Hmm. Because they actually require more energy than they emit. And that's an important thing to think about. And and when you say epic amounts of energy, you're talking about more than the sun can produce. Yes. Our sun can't make uranium. Interesting. It doesn't have enough mass. It doesn't have... The way that fusion works in the sun, and we don't fully understand this, is just working with gravity. Gravity and vacuum, right? We have a lot of weight pulling in on itself to create enough pressure to create fusion, which releases bursts of energy. And that burst of energy typically blows a few neutrons around, which causes more fusion, and it creates a cascade. But as you get into heavier and heavier atoms, it requires more energy than it emits, you know, beyond the iron threshold. And that becomes important as we start talking about more and more advanced fusion concepts. So this is where stuff like supernovas come into play. When you can get really big stars that start running down on the lighter weight uh, fuels as they age and will then collapse down enough to actually create a massive explosion, which represents enough energy, that makes all of the heavier materials. Okay. So we are not only just the stuff of stars, but for many of the heavier things that we work with, like lead and uranium and so forth, we're the stuff of supernovas. So that's that's where it all comes from in the Earth. Because everything. Yeah. You know, the presumption here is all of the universe was created by that cycle. Yeah. Fascinating. And thanks for that, that uh, lesson, because, yeah, there's stuff in there that I didn't even know. As so, is usually the case when I listen to you talk, Mr. <laughs> Campbell. <laughs> Thanks. I, I, there's a great conversation to be had about astrophysics in, the, in this I'm whole I'm sure space. there is. And, I, you know, a good bottle of scotch and some friends would uh, make that better. Well, and it wasn't – this is how you got me to do this in the first place. These were the conversations <laughs> you and I would have in private. Uh, we were – they were one-sided conversations. You, you would have a group of people around a table drinking scotch and listening to your lectures, basically, and just – in awe and in fascinating. That's where this came from. All right. It wasn't a conversation, my friend. Let's put it that way. Uh, you got to ask the right questions, though. You yeah. know, it's all part of the dynamic. That's true. So let's talk about why we even want to build fusion power. Because uh, it's a, it's a, I think at the end of this, you may wonder, like, are we, are we doing an intelligent thing at all? Right. Uh, it's, it's fairly challenging. And, and believe me, I was more enthusiastic about fusion power going into this research than I am coming out of it. Really? But yeah. Okay. Which happens to me. Like this, it's interesting, the, the, the debate around this, especially when we talk about what I'm, this particular area, which is hot fusion. Yes. So first off, let's talk about how much power the planet's currently consuming. 
All right. Uh, and I, and I actually went to the World Data Bank for this, which is, has a lot of different information. And one of the areas that they do have is electric power consumption. And so I sort of sorted out per capita kilowatt hours per capita power consumption. Mm-hmm. You'd think the U.S. would be first, wouldn't you? You think? You would think, but they're 10th. Wow. And this is 2011 data. And part of it has to do, you know, the, the highest is actually Iceland. And the reason is that Iceland mostly generates their power from geothermal. That's so right. it's quite environmental. And there's not very many of them. There are only about 300,000 Icelanders. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, can, they, they burn about f- uh, 52 kilowatts per capita per year. It's, it's really high. The U.S. comes in more like 10 or 12. But then, again, they have an abundance of energy from geothermal, right? Yeah, same with Can- Canada comes in like third because we have so much uh, power mostly from uh, hydroelectric. Right. So, and, and Norway's way up there too, because they generate an awful lot of their own power. You know, it's, it's all a question of how you generate it. Uh, it's shown fairly consistently that like US and Canada, we're, we're up in the 12, 13, 14 kilowatt uh, hours per, per person per year. Mm-hmm. The Europeans tend to be lower, mm-hmm. right? Eight, between six and eight kilowatts per capita. When you get into more developing countries like, like India, Right. Like, that's a lot of people in India, but yeah. they le- they're less, they're like half a kilowatt hour per person. There's a lot of rural areas in India as well. Yeah. And, Mostly and, rural. and a, a lot of poverty. Right. Like it, it's just a, important to recognize India while having a lot going on. I mean, they're flying spacecraft and, and things like this. I think they're about to field their own aircraft carrier. They're still a pretty poor country. Yeah. And, uh, and power generation is, is, is part of that. So when you start to think in terms of, the whole planet wanting to live to, say, a Western European lifestyle. So that kind of power availability. Yeah. Um, we need a lot of power. And right now we're consuming about 16 terawatt hours per year in the planet. Mm-hmm. And to get everyone up to Western European levels, we'd need 60 terawatt hours. Wow. So say you space it over 20 years or so. So that's 6, 7% growth per year. And it costs roughly $1,000 per kilowatt hour added in power generation. Okay. So it's trillions of dollars to make that much power. And we are not doing it. We are adding more power generation planet-wide all the time right now. The Chinese lead the way in making new power plants. And we could talk about all the fear around sure, that. Sure, sure. The way they're making their power with coal. Lots and even with coal. some of the nuclear developments they're doing, where you sort of wonder, they're building, at the rate that the rest of the world can build nuclear power plants, the Chinese are going four or five times faster. Hmm. How are they going that fast? Hmm. So now you get into, well, if we need that, we're going to get that much power, some form. What systems can we use? No one technique is going to do it. We, we can't lay enough solar cells. We certainly can't pull that much oil out of the ground or that much coal out of the ground and right. still have a planet to live in. Yeah. Uh, we can argue the merits of different fission technologies. Right. And I'm thinking specifically about molten salt. Yep, salt reactors. Um, and But fu- fusion plays into this as well because fusion offers this crazy promise that if you can take two and a half pounds of hydrogen and fuse it completely to get as much energy from it as you could, you generate about the same amount of energy as 18 million pounds of coal. Good Lord. Right? 18 million pounds. Yes. Now, remember, fission's way up there too in terms of power efficiency, but fusion's a league above that. Right, right. Right. This is another another order of magnitude. You're using up the whole atom 
Mm. not just a couple of protons and neutrons from each atom. That's the amount of power you can get from fusion is staggering. Uh, well, Richard, you know what time it is. Uh, must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to fuse together a joke and give away some goody stuff. I don't know. <laughs> You're going to release a lot of energy. I got nothing. Nice. We actually need to give away a Dev Express D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. Before I tell you who it is, let's talk about Dev Express Universal. Become a UI superhero with Dev Express UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Andrew Bancroft. Congratulations, Andrew. From Ardmore. for you, sir. From Ardmore, Oklahoma. His response to the email was, that period is period amazing. <laughs> Four exclamation marks. I love it. <laughs> oh, Andrew, you just won a great big hunk of awesome from DevExpress, the D-Experience subscription. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away stuff like the D Experience subscription, and every December we give away five thousand dollars worth of technology. Richard, I haven't asked you. I think I want to ask you. You know, because I just got asked this question on another show. Okay. And I went down the three D printing side, but buddy, what would you get with five grand? Uh, I would probably get another one of these Presonus thirty two AI mixing boards. See, so practical. But you really love that device. I love it. It's working for well for you. And the problem is I have one in the studio and I want to take it out to, to gigs when I do sound or when I bring the band out and you know, one just isn't enough. Yeah. I want to keep the one in the studio. It's connected. Set up and configured correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, configuration is a breeze with this thing because it has a recall button and a save button. So nice. the only thing it's really missing is flying faders. You know, in in other words, when you recall something, all the dials and buttons and faders actually physically move to their positions. I love that. And you've seen that for years on sure. great big consoles. But this is, we're talking about a $5,000 board here. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it should have it. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, it's it's got way more than you'd expect for a $5,000 board. Way nice. more. Um just amazing. 14 auxiliary sends. <laughs> <laughs> Four effects processors built Funny in. Funny things make you happy. <laughs> yeah. Every channel has a compressor, a limiter, a, um, all sorts of EQ. Um, we're talking about four-band parametric EQ. Full. Nice. Yeah. It's just so great. Wow. That's, that's my thing. There you go. I know. Yeah. I love it. Don't tell Kelly. <laughs> she's like no franklin you can't have another toy no more toys yeah <laughs> all right let's do a little history of fusion here because fusion really got started there's a hilarious story about uh the argentinians announcing they had fusion like in 1951 which turned out to be a complete hoax well there's been a bunch of hoaxes and mostly around cold fusion right well that's that's in the 80s that's years and years later and i think oh, okay. it's part of the reason that fusion research is always kind of messy because there's all kinds it's such a perfect promise. Right. 
you know, electricity from seawater, no waste, everything's going to be perfect. Like, it is such a description of snake oil. It is, yep. But if you go back to the real research, is a guy named Lyman Spitzer, okay. who actually was affected by the hoax in Argentina way back when, and he started doing sort of the initial work on could you actually make a fusion reactor? Is that kind of madness? This is the 1950s, so, you know, fission is just getting started even then. And he was uh, uh, working at Princeton and literally in a rabbit hutch in an old building in the back of, of uh, Princeton. He built a desktop fusion device he called a Stellarator or like a star machine. Huh. And it just he, – he got the basics down pat. You need an inva- a, a vacuum environment and then you heat up gases so that they become ions. And But he was able to get up into temperatures in the million degree range. And it's hard to measure when you get to those kinds of temperatures in vacuums. The sun runs somewhere in the 10 to 20 million degree range, but it's really, really big. We need to actually get much hotter than that um, when you talk about building fusion in much smaller spaces. Yeah. And the thing to understand, of course, is just because you could make a plasma and you could cause fusion doesn't mean you're actually making any electricity. Right. Right. It so has to be harnessed. You know, the the plasmas can... that Spitzer made in his Stellarator only last a, a couple of milliseconds. They were very quick mm-hmm. because plasma is really hard to control. Right. right. It wants to discharge all that energy into something that doesn't have that energy. The sun bottles it up by having nothing around it for millions of miles. But we've got to bottle it up tighter than that. And, and even then, in the early 50s, they were already on this path of, we need to scale up the project. We need a larger vacuum chamber. We need more powerful magnets to bottle up a magnetic plasma. Mm. And in the early 50s, this research, like by, by 1958, they were not getting anywhere. And they actually declassified the research, published it. And the Soviets actually published stuff as well. And that's where the first tokamaks uh, appeared. The Soviets were experimenting with the tokamak for fusion power. And that's basically think donut. And the tokamak is the design of the ITER, which we're going to talk about yes, soon. Yes, the ITER is the largest tokamak ever made. There's literally like 200 tokamaks in the world. So what is a tokamak, actually? Think donut. It right. is literally a donut or a tire shape. So because that happens to be – you need the plasma needs a place to flow and – uh, this happens to be a very even way to bottle it up, but it has its own set of problems too. There's been other bottling techniques. Uh, the Lawrence Livermore built a thing called mirror magnetic fusion. Um, and stellarators themselves, even though, it, um, Spitzer's design didn't go very far, well, there's still stellarators being built today. There's one in northeastern Germany being built right now called the Wendelson 7X. Huh. It's, it's about a billion dollars worth of stellarator. They use superconductive coils, so very powerful magnets, and they're working towards a 30 minute plasma. So they're trying to keep plasma contained for 30 minutes, which believe me is a long time. Wow. For a plasma. And one of the reasons that the Germans are working on that, even though they're also involved in ITER, is that uh, they're trying to figure out how to – if there's more than one way to make fusion, and part of this is the challenge in actually collecting power from it, and we'll, we'll get there. Okay. All right? So, uh, let's take two real hot fusion approaches, and probably two – when I ask people about fusion, what projects they know about, they mention two different ones. One is ITER, which is a tokamak fusion system. Right. And the other one is NIF, or the National Ignition F- Facility. And this was just in the news late last year. So NIF is uh, the Lawrence Livermore Labs, which has been leading the world in, in all kinds of, of nuclear-related research. And they've built a lot of different devices. Uh, and this is a 
what they call inertial fusion, or in other words, compression fusion. So rather than using a magnetic bottle and creating plasmas, they want to make a flash pumped uh, fuel ignition. So they're going to build a, re- have built a really big laser that emits 192 different laser beams simultaneously impacting on a point about two millimeters across inside of a sphere to compress a nuclear fuel, in this case, deuterium-trinium fuel. Hmm. Sound crazy? It is crazy. It is crazy, because that laser, in order to... So the, I'm going to read you the specs. This is what they intended to build, was a 500 terawatt. Remember, the whole planet only consumes 16 terawatts. Okay. A 500 terawatt laser. But it only fires for a picosecond. Okay? <laughs> picosecond? It doesn't What's last that? very long. So they have one laser generating source they call the Master Oscillator. It's a, a yttrium-doped infrared laser. They then split that laser up into 48 separate beams that go through these preamplifier modules. Now, at this point, the power level of the laser is really, really low. It's only about a few nanojoules. Okay. So a joule is a unit of energy, right? Right. right. So sort of follow this sort of stack as you have uh, the um, sort of amount of force generated in newtons, uh, and an, and one newton is about the force you need to accelerate one uh, kilogram at a rate of one meter per second. So sure. you want to move it first, first second it moves one meter, next second it moves two meters. So then now three meters down, that's one newton of force, right? All right. And folks say, well, you know, how much is a, you know, give me something bigger. Right. So the space shuttle lifts off at a rate, uh, using amount, amount of force of 20 mega newtons. Yikes. Okay. And that's, that's lots of force. We're only talking about nanojoules, and a joule is the amount of energy in newtons required to exert over over uh, a distance. So, one joule is equivalent of one newton over a meter. Okay. So, we're at nanonewtons, but we pass it through this regenerative amplifier, and this regenerative amplifier basically is a bunch of flashbulbs that adds energy to the laser light. It actually uh, goes through about 60 times until it gets it up to about tens of millijoules, not even a whole joule yet. Okay. Still at the early stage. It's pretty low power. The second stage of the PAM passes it through this neodymium glass amplifier, which now takes it up to about six joules of power. It's not enough to do anything. And it's in the infrared spectrum. You can't even see it, but it doesn't mean anything. But now we're ready to go to the main amplification bank. So the main amplification banks are these... This is the unique piece of what they did at NIF. The most incredible thing they built there was these massive capacitor banks. They store 422 megajoules of power. Okay. So we've been playing with joules so far. Now we're millions of joules. Got it. Right? And if you're thinking in terms of electrical generation, it's about 120 kilowatts. So they send this light now through the main amplifiers four times, taking the six-joule beam energy up to four megajoules. Okay. That's power. Yeah. Okay. Now you're talking in terms four megajoules, if you're going to estimate the impact, would be a four-ton truck going 100 miles an hour. Wow. That's how much force we're talking when you get to four megajoules. Wow. Still in the infrared energy range, so it's not good for an awful lot. They now do a bunch of beam cleaning. They go through these spatial filters, sort of tighten it up, make it expand the light, mask it, shrink it down, mask it again. They then have to get all these beams split up into 192 different entry points into this 10-meter sphere to hit the, the target. And the beams have to all arrive at exactly the same time within picoseconds because the beam time is very, very short. You want to create compression 
from that burst of energy. Right. So they actually have optical lengtheners to slow down the beams come that come in on the short pathway so that the long pathways can catch up. They also convert the infrared light to UV light using a frequency converters. And the way you do that is they grow their own giant potassium dihydrate phosphate crystals. So they think about NIF is not just wow. a a big laser, right? It's all of the technology to manufacture the laser. So they grow these huge KDP crystals. They then cut them into one centimeter thick sheets and stack them together. And at about a 50% efficiency rate, they convert infrared light into UV light. Okay. So the beams leaving the converters are now at about 1.8 megajoules. Yeah. Okay? Yep. And everything runs pretty hot. One of the, th- most systems like this, and they built a bunch of them, um, they can only fire them maybe once a day because they get so hot, it takes all day to cool them back down again without damaging them. The NIF was an achievement because it actually got two firings in a given day. Hmm. So 192 ports aimed at a single cent- center of the sphere. The target is a thing called a hullrum, which is a, a little gold plate coated cylinder that contains a, a solid deuterium tritium fuel. There's okay. a little gas in it as well. It's chilled down to very, very cold, nearing absolute zero. It's so cold. When the lasers hit that target, the casing actually vaporizes. In the process of doing that, it converts that ultraviolet energy to X-rays, and it compresses the fuel to a density of a kilogram per cubic centimeter. Basically, what you take in the last 10 minutes to say is it's really fast, really hot, and stuff happens at that fast, right. hot speed And a, th- a kilogram per cubic centimeter is very dense. Consider that lead is 11 grams per cubic centimeter. So, yeah. to be 1,000 grams per cubic centimeter is to be very compressed. So, in order to build one of these things, they have to have huge, you know, thick walls and all sorts of Create what do they mit the walls made out of lead and then concrete on the outside? All yeah. The construction is amazing. It was a five billion dollar project to build this thing. Five billion bucks. Yeah. And the goal was when you compress that thing down, you would release twenty megajoules of energy. Now that's pretty good if you could actually pull it off to release twenty megajoules from fusion. And they thought with some tuning they might be able to get up to forty five megajoules. Now, that's about the equivalent of of 25 pounds of TNT going off. It's not, this is not a nuclear bomb, but it's pretty powerful. And it took them five years to build that. And it didn't work. Well, oops. So the best shot they ever fired was in September of 2013. Uh, when they released 14 kilojoules of energy from fusion. Well, that's Which was actually there. more than the X-ray energy that was pumped into it in the first place. Yeah. But it was not anywhere near the amount of energy required. Well, okay. So the goal of the National Ignition Facility, this was a research project, was to get to ignition. And ignition's goal, the, the concept of ignition and fusion, is that you create enough fusion energy to actually emit more power than you put in. That the amount of and amount of atoms fused release enough energy to add up to all the energy you poured into making it. Right. Follow me? Because that's like, yep. if we're going to build a fusion reactor... We need to be able to capture more energy than we put into it. Not And now they're not even trying to capture it. They're just trying to make more than they put in. Right. And the miss was pretty big. They went from a 1.8 megajoule energy burst going into it to a 14 kilojoule burst coming out of it. 
Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So you go from a dump truck amount of force to a baseball amount of force. So the, um, the, the, and that's the biggest ignition facility ever built right now. That's as far as they've come. The news is right up to date as of like April of 2014. Uh, they're still trying to understand why it doesn't work. Why it's not producing as much power as they want and what they want to do with that. They had a follow on project planned for the NIF called Life for the Laser Inertial Fusion Energy Project, which is the one where they're actually going to want to collect power. And because the theory here was you would pulse lasers, burn fuel, capture that energy, recharge the lasers and fire it again. And you would fire it over and over and over again. You know, uh, almost continuously, every few seconds, you would have another firing. Remember, right now, they've not been able to fire more than twice a day. Right. They'd be able to rapid fire. And and what I like about this approach is this idea that you're not trying to make a star. You're not trying to sustain a fire. You're trying to just create a a momentary fire, collect the power. Momentary fire, collect the power. They're just nowhere at this point. Right. And they've spent billions. And so this is the first attempt. This is NIF. This isn't the stuff that's going on today. Well, NIF actually represents the most mature implementation of laser containment, of inertial fusion. Okay. Okay. So it's absolutely up to today. The the LIFE project has been shelved as of April 2014 because they they still haven't solved how to actually do laser containment. So that is one approach to fusion. That's the most advanced experiment. They've spent billions on it. They're still trying to figure out exactly why it isn't working. They've built the most powerful laser in the world at this point. There's some, some amazing technology developed. Just be aware. It's yeah. nowhere near actually generating power. Right. Okay? Okay. So let's talk about the tokamak generator. And there's a, like I said, there's literally a couple of hundred tokamaks. And this is magnetic fusion. So now you're using a magnet to bottle it up. And I would argue up till now, the one of the most powerful uh, Takamak's ever built is a thing called JET for the Joint European Taurus. And they uh, use deuterium-trinium mix of fuels. And deuterium-trinium is an interesting fuel, but it has problems. One of the biggest problems is that it's, trinium is actually radioactive. Right? Yeah. We talked about this in the nuclear accident show, that the trinium emits neutrons on a regular basis. So people would prefer not to use trinium because it gets rid of the radioactivity. Deuterium is a lot easier to handle. But every time they try and get enough power out to actually show that it's useful, uh, they end up needing to use tritium because they need the neutrons. The neutrons end up being a big power source because they're thermal. They will boil water. Right. They can capture heat with it. And so the, in 1997, the most powerful run of the jet, the, the joint European Taurus, they put in 17 megawatts of power and generated 16 megawatts out. Wow. Now that's generated, not captured. Right. Okay. But they were close. And the explanation at that point was it's not big enough. Wow. Right? If we build a bigger one, then we should be able to make it work. Now, even while JET was still being built, ITER was being proposed. And ITER stands for the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Mm-hmm. So that was proposed back in 95, in 85. And it uh, took time to sort of work out the plan. And one of the things they did was rather than, you know, JET was just European countries. NIF, America. Okay? Yeah. ITER, they involve a lot of countries. Yep, 35 countries total, right? All Almost all of Europe, including Russia, including the U.S., China, Japan, South Korea, and India. In 94, the budget was about $10 billion. So already more money than in any other project. It was going to be the most expensive fusion project uh, up to date. By 99, the thing was so far off the rails, the U.S. actually withdrew from it entirely. 
said it was just a money sink. It was never, they hadn't broken ground. They were nowhere. Wow. 2001, they redesigned the project to scale it down, to make it less expensive. They say it's only going to cost $5 billion. And they said they thought they could get 10 times the power out, that if they put in 50 megawatts, they'd get a 500 megawatt release. Wow. Jeez. Which would be great, except that it's never, we've never even been close before. And that version in 2001 would be ready by 2010. You'll notice we're not talking about it. Right. Okay. And there's actually a comment by, I think it was a deputy director that said, if we can get these guys to spend their money after the first billion, no one will stop us. So by 2010, when it wasn't working, those guys were all let go and they put together a new team. Now, during that time, the U.S. did rejoin. And that's the project version they're currently working on now. The way they split the project up, they actually had to create their own currency called the ITER unit of account. <laughs> that's okay? crazy. 45% of the cost would be borne by Europe. And then the other major contributing countries would do 9% each. So the U.S. is supposed to be in for only 9%. And some of them, you know, the conservative estimates at this point for ITER is at about $20 billion. But if you actually do the math, the U.S. is currently in at a, for about $4 billion. And if they're only 9% of the project... Just extrapolating out for that, this should yeah. be about a $40 billion project. Wow. Now, that doesn't make it the most expensive project in the world. That would be the International Space Station that's run somewhere between 100 and $150 billion. <laughs> okay? Yeah. But it would be the next most expensive. Okay. And their current, they were in this current design saying, we can get this thing to run by 2020. Now they're saying more like 2025. And I would throw in, as we've mentioned, nuclear weapons and stuff, the conflict between Russia and the U.S. right now over Ukraine is impacting this project. I'm sure it is. They were supposed to do meetings in Russia, and they just couldn't. They had to move them. Huh. Now, the goal of ITER is to create a 200 million degree plasma. Right. So, 10 times the heat of the sun's core itself. Now, this is a big torus, big, big torus, surrounded by the most power, one of the most powerful magnets ever made. And of course, it's superconducting magnets. And the superconductor they're using at this point is niobium wire, which uses liquid helium to become a superconductor. And it's frustrating to me because we've had a lot of... That's a very old superconducting technology. Yeah, yeah. But it's a known one, and they're still using it. If they would be... If we poured a little bit of this money into the research to do high-temperature superconductors, so the stuff that would just be cooled by liquid uh, nitrogen, right. we'd probably reduce a lot of cost. But the important thing to realize is that there's the reason all these countries are involved is they all want a bit of this technology. They all want to learn from it. Right. And so they fight over what parts they get to build. So, for example, the torus itself, the main vacuum chamber, uh -huh. it has to be one perfect piece, right? It has to be a perfect vacuum. So the logical way to build a perfect vacuum piece, one of the largest you've ever built, would be to build it in one place. Would that make sense? Sure. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. So they're building it in nine pieces in nine different parts of the world. Well, okay. Seven of them are being built in Europe, and two of them are being built in Korea. All right. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Part of the political negotiation, they ended up landing it in a place in France, in the in the southeast corner of France, um, which seems like a good idea, except for that part where it's subject to earthquakes and very high winds, <laughs> which means they're having to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on an anti-seismic system to keep everything stable. Because let's face it, you don't want your fusion reactor to move around. No. But that's not the scary part, right? This is one of the most complicated machines the humans have ever built. They figure about 10 million parts total. Yeah. The scariest part of the machine for me is the main solenoid. So this is the, – the way this machine works is that you create a vacuum in a, in a torus. Then you heat up 
some deuterium trinium fuel. You get it to a low plasma, nothing, nothing too hot. You pump it in there so it's circulating around. Now you heat it up some more. You start exercising this magnet to charge the field up, make it more and more and more powerful. The magnet contains it and heats it. And then you bombard it with additional x-rays to really get it to the high temperature you want to get to. This main solenoid, the, the main magnet, yeah, is make is a thousand tons, about forty feet tall. It has twenty miles of superconductive uh, wire in it that has to be cooled with liquid helium, and it creates a magnetic field that's two hundred sixty thousand times stronger than the Earth's field. Wow! The solenoid itself is built in six pieces that are roughly like poker chips, except remember it's forty feet tall, right? And it weighs a thousand tons. The strength of the field is 60 meganewtons, or about three times the thrust that lifts the space shuttle into orbit. Would you, would you feel comfortable walking up to the outside of that building? This, think about how much force it's going to take to keep those magnets from flying away. That's what I'm saying. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I'm sure. They're being built by different subcontractors in six different countries. Huh. They have to be assembled together. Uh, and they have to hold 41 billion, that's giga, joules of energy when running. Now, they only are superconductive when they're exactly in form and cooled with liquid helium. Should the coils ever go normal, that's the term, when you lose superconductivity, that energy has nowhere to go. This actually happened in the Large Hadron Collider, and it knocked the Large Hadron Collider out for two years. And it was nowhere near this power level. Wow. There's so much force in this magnet. And it can't move. When it's cooled by liquid helium, it's super brittle. If it cracks, it'll lose, it'll go normal. It's a massive amount of violence. But you're trying to contain a plasma of incredible heat. And remember, the goal here is we pour in 50 megawatts, we get out 500 megawatts. Right. And this is being built. In fact, I'll include a link to the brochure from June of 2014 from the US ITER project with pictures of the construction that's currently going on. All right. But wait, let's There's talk about more. a few other little problems. So we're going to use deuterium-trinium fuel, right? Yeah. You remember, deuterium has one neutron, trinium has two neutrons, and it's slightly radioactive. Right. We're going to heat it up to 200 million degrees. Those neutrons are going to go flying everywhere, and they're not going to be held by the magnetic bottle because they don't have a magnetic charge, right? They're right. neutrons. Right. Which means that everything inside that vacuum chamber in the immediate surrounding area will eventually be radioactive. Yeah. Because it's going to be a bombardment of neutrons. Now, it's low radiation. This isn't like fission fuel. Right. But it is radioactive. But there's another problem. And it's something they found in JET. When you constantly bombard metals with neutrons, you do structural damage to the atoms. To the point where the metal starts to turn into powder. That can't be good. <laughs> so you sort of get into the situation where you're going to build this thing. It has a tremendous amount of power. You're building it in a collective, this crazy collective group. So you're spending a lot more money than necessary to build it. And if you screw up, it's going to blow itself to pieces and we'll pretty much have to start over. It's going to be very dangerous to run to know for sure that it works. Right. And then even if it works, it will destroy itself in the process. That's, that can't be good. No. So, uh, and we still don't if, have any mechanism for actually collecting the power from it. So what have they, what have they done to, uh, ameliorate that problem? Well, they don't think the, the, the neutron issue is a non-issue. This is the, the, so far deuterium trinium fuel is the best fuel we have for creating fusion, right? It's the one we understand, but it emits a lot of neutrons. 
And there's no solution to the neutrons per se. They would just have to start making systems that could replace the parts that would be radioactive and damaged. Right? Huh. Eventually, that vacuum chamber won't maintain its seal. In later shows, we can talk about some of the other approaches that are out there that are a little more far out. This is mainstream science. This is big science. Yeah. Right? And we talk about big science. Obviously, the biggest one is the International Space Station, which is the most amount of money. And people can really argue, you know, the United States spent $50 billion on the International Space Station. In theory, it's only just in the past couple of years that it's been open for business that they're supposed to be doing some research. Right. But it's hard to point at the project exactly and say, is it worth it? To my, for my money, the best big science project out there, the one that everybody knows, is the Large Hadron Collider. Right. Right? So that was a $6 billion project. To find God. Well, to find the God part. That's what I mean. Yeah. A $6 billion <laughs> project, $500 million spent by the U.S., took 10 years to build. Um, they spent another $3 billion on top of that to do upgrades. So it's closer to $10 billion. It uses the same sort of superconductors as the, the ITER. But... Within two years, well, first two years, it broke itself, and then it took them two years to fix it. Right. But in 2013, they found the Higgs boson. Like, it did its job. Right. Right. So, do you, do you have faith that they will uh, they will complete? I'm – the thing that frustrates me about ITER is not only is it an incredible cash sink, and one that where nobody actually knows how much money is being spent, it's – the way that it's being built – is not a good way to do science. It's a good way to keep your project from being canceled, right? Yeah. They've involved lots of countries. They've got so many people committed. They, the pressure of international treaties keeps the project going rather than actually be good science. If you wanted to do good science, if that's what mattered to you most, if you're actually interested in solving the fusion problem, in producing power, yeah. that was the most important thing, what would you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Wouldn't you take... 20 or 30 billion dollars and you'd spread it around the best hundred ideas you had hmm. you know a lot of these most people don't have can't spend a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars maybe a million dollars you could take put together a group of people test all of these ideas at once and see which ones advance use the scientists to measure it well something in the back of my head tells me that they must have done something like that in order to get to this place in the first place you'd think because you know multiple countries lots and lots of money the the these countries best and brightest scientists must have been uh involved in in giving it the old okay but politics always plays a part in this and the one of the thing when you look at if you're not particularly worried about science but you have to do something to keep the masses happy right what would a politician do? Pick one big project, spend lots of money on it. Why does why would a politician like that better than many, many different projects at once? The problem when you do lots of projects is you're always going to have a few crackpots and you're always going to have a few child molesters, right? And in the political world, that's suicide, right? It doesn't matter that we put four billion into this pro into this hundred projects and and sixty of them are great. What about the forty that weren't? What about this guy who's a child molester? And what about this crackpot idea? Like that's what everybody focuses on. So from a political perspective, it makes a lot more sense to put all the money into one project where you know who everybody is, it's all the best and brightest, so it's safe, even if it's wrong. That's the frustration I that's have. That's pretty scary that too. If you took the money that's been soaked into ITER, you could have molten salt reactors up and running today. Right. Right? They figure it's about 2 to $4 billion to actually get to a full-scale molten salt reactor, right? And I'm huh. giving us lots of room on that. Yeah. They've blown through more of that on the NIF yeah. than they did much less on ITER. Sure. 
right? Now, admittedly, fusion has some attractions, and in later shows, we could talk about some of the other approaches. But these two biggest projects talk to the problem of big science when we're still really doing research. Yeah. Now, that being said, the United States spent more money on the B-2 bomber than it spent, than everybody spent on ITER, Mm -hmm. right? So, just keep our head on where we are actually spending money. But at the same time, it frustrates me that there's this level of expenditure on these small projects that have very known problems. And by the way, ITER's not the end of the road. The next generation project past this one, the one called Demo, is actually going to where they're trying to get to 10 times more power put in than out with ITER. They think that Demo can give 25 more times more power than they put in. They think they'll be able to capture as much as two gigawatts of power operational by 2035. It's just the craziest thing. I mean, you know, let, we're going to build this great big donut and it's going to work. And oops, no, it didn't. And oh, we didn't anticipate that. And yeah, it seems like bad science to me. It's it's frustrating to me because what's happened over time is we've gotten better and better. The NIF is the biggest solo country project I've seen, mm. where the U.S. has spent $5 billion to build something that doesn't work, that looks like they're probably going to shut it down, but they're continuing to try and figure it out. Right. Here's something that is, depending on how you do the math, five to ten times more expensive, involving a lot more countries with an incredible amount of political inertia. It has added its scientific risk massively because of this politics. Right. And even if it does work, it's a self-destructive technology. It's not actually the, – the, the problems that are there are so big, they're going to need something completely different if we're actually going to make power with it. Now, you said China was building nuclear reactors, uh, yes. power stations. Are they using molten salt or are they no. going pure uranium like everybody they're, else? They are building light water reactors with help from the West. Huh while still doing research into molten salt and pebble bed and a lot of the other technologies. Well, they are about. building a thorium reactor, right? Yes. But exactly what kind right now? There was recently announced that the Indians are going to build a light water thorium reactor as well. Hmm. So there, there are, there's movement in all of those places. But yeah, when it comes to research, the, the challenge I have is that it's like software. Yeah. Like, Big projects have a higher risk of failing. Yeah. And these are really big projects. These are some of the biggest projects you've ever done. And the chances of them working just look so bleak. Right. Right. This idea that if we just scale it up, we'll get better. When has that ever worked? Right. Right. And then that's where we are with the most expensive project in the world, short of the space station itself. Hmm. So I'm frustrated with where we are with hot fusion, but there are so many other technologies to talk about that if if this is interesting to folks, I'm willing to keep going. We can start talking about magnetized target and dense plasma and a bunch of the other approaches that folks are looking at that have tiny budgets, that have sub-million dollar budgets, budgets so small that the tech billionaires are actually funding them to some degree. And that's going to be the next geek out? I think we should go there. And then I also feel like, because everybody wants to, we should do one whole show just on coal fusion. Well, absolutely. Because the stack of research I've pulled together so far just in my reading around coal fusion is is absolutely mind-boggling. And it's... That's it the was, real snake oil right there, isn't it? It's pretty snake oily. <laughs> but you know what? It was, it was one thing when it was the 1980s, but it's the 2010s now. It's the 20-teens now, and we know a lot more. And it's not 
completely bunk. It's just surrounded by so many nut jobs right. and this terrible document for the Department of Energy that makes it snake oil. Yeah. And it's almost worth trying to pull that back. So those are the two other shows I'm thinking about, but I'm willing to be influenced. So anybody listening to this, okay. you want to know more, you want us to go further, uh, drop us a note on Facebook, Google+, on the comments for the show, and uh, we'll yeah. keep going. Sounds good, Richard. As always, great show. Thank you. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.